The pilot comes off the plane and tells the people that the flight from Milwaukee to Minnesota had just been canceled. I'm like, okay. Because no one really wants to go to just Milwaukee. So, uh, so, like, what am I going to do there, right? I'm sorry. Okay. But you live here now. I'm just... Sorry, Gene. Sorry, Gene. So, um, meanwhile, there's a, there's a mom with a 15-year-old daughter that she had just put on this flight to Minneapolis, who's on the flight, has no idea it's not going to Minneapolis. And the mom's like, I need my daughter off that plane, and no one's listening to her. And then she says, well, I just need somebody to do something, right? This just like desperate, like, please, somebody do something because I'm in a spot and I, I will do anything to get my daughter off that plane. And it was horrible. I never made it to Minnesota, um, and, and a lot of people didn't make it to where they were going. And I was thinking about that experience and just humanity and um, how people just, uh, just get to the end of their rope so quickly. And I'm thinking about this in terms of the story in Ruth. Because if you've just joined us, um, we've been in this book all summer. And one of the things that I think is really important for us to realize is we get to the, the crescendo today, as we get to the, the cool end of the story, that's all great. You know, we're going to wrap a big bow on it. But if you remember at the beginning of the story, it's, I need somebody to just do something. It's this desperate uh, mom and her two daughter-in-laws, and they have lost everything, and they have nothing. And you remember this story takes place in a time, it's called the, the time of the judges. And at the last verse in the book of Judges, it says, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, meaning it was just a free-for-all. Whatever felt good, do it. And it didn't matter if it hurt other people. It didn't matter if it set up systems that oppressed people. It didn't matter. It was everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so you can imagine what kind of a community that was like. It was a dark and nearly hopeless time for the people. And then the book of Ruth is like if we were to zoom in, you know, like zoom in on this, on this story that's happening in this little small town, in this little small family of what God is, is doing. He's active and he's working and he's, he's working for the good of the people, for this little family. And he's actually working for the glory of his name across the world. But we'll see that as we zoom back out. But as we zoomed in, we see a family we see Naomi and her husband Elimelech, and his name, his name means my God is king. And they leave Israel, and they leave the promised land. They leave their people, and they go to a foreign land in Moab. And famine and all that kind of stuff is something they were running from. And her husband dies. Her daughters get married. I mean, his son, her sons get married to two Moabite women, and then they die. And so now Naomi is stuck with two daughter-in-laws to take care of, and she has nothing. And they're just vulnerable, and they're, uh, they have no one to provide for them or protect for them. 
And in all their suffering, one of the foreign daughters, Ruth, decides to go with her back to Bethlehem, to her home people. And they return together to Bethlehem, and where Naomi tells the women of the town to not call her Naomi anymore, they tell her to call her Mara, which means bitter. And she says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me and has brought calamity on me. And so they're back in Israel, and, and uh, Ruth goes out to glean behind the workers. And this is a, a way that Israel set up, that God had set up for the people of Israel to care for the poor and the foreigners and the widows. And, and they would glean, meaning they would follow behind the harvesters. And anything that was not picked or everything, anything was not good or, or anything that was fallen to the ground, they could, they could harvest that. And so Ruth does this and... Um, just catching some of you up with the story if you've missed. And Ruth does this, and then she, she just so happens that she meets um, the owner of the field who just so happens to be um, in the family of Elimelech. And he just so happens to be a really great and wonderful man. And he blesses her, and he goes above and beyond. Uh, and just letting her glean, he, he tells her where to go, and he even gives her more than, and it, he just goes far beyond the heart of the law. And he does all this stuff, just lavishes on her. Two weeks ago, we told the story of the threshing floor. In this moment that Naomi instructs Ruth to go to the threshing floor and to do something so bold, and so risky, they could have lost everything they had gotten up to this point. They traded everything they had gotten up to this point uh, on a huge risk for something even better. And the something even better was marriage to Boaz. But we find ourselves in, in this interesting part of the story now because there's one obstacle. Because in this story, in Ruth chapter 3, Boaz commits to helping redeem Ruth, but there's somebody else that has to say no first. There's somebody else that has first dibs. And so he says, one way or another, Ruth, you will be redeemed. And it says in Ruth chapter three, verse 11, it says, now my daughter, this is Boaz talking, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a garden redeemer of your family, there is another who is more closely related than I. And he says, stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. And he says, one way or another, this is going to get figured out tomorrow. One way or another, somebody is going to redeem you. And so we're going to read, we're going to start in the first verse of chapter 4 to finish this story out. And it goes like this. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer had mentioned, uh, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Now, I, I've got to take a second to just share with you the actual King James version of those two verses. 
And if you're familiar with the King James Version, it, this has no bearing whatsoever on our service today, on the message. I just find it hilarious. It, it goes like this. Uh, Boaz spake, and he came by, and unto whom he said, Ho, such a one. He calls the guy such a one. I thought that was funny. And then he says, turn aside, sit ye down here. <laughs> that's hilarious. I think that's funny. So they're pirates. Um, let's get serious now. Anyhow, so, so what, what we have here in the first two verses is Boaz actually is true to his word. He promises that he's going to take care of this first thing in the morning. Evidently, first thing in the morning is when business happened at the gate. And, and Boaz does not waste any time. The first thing he does is head to the town gate. Now, mind you, here's the rest of the story. There's a huge pile of threshed grain on the threshing floor, and he leaves it. I mean, obviously, he's got workers. But, I mean, the, the, the whole economic pile, he leaves it to go take care of this matter that is that important. And he goes, and, and, and the grain is, is on the pile. It reminds me of uh, the story that Jesus tells about the treasure in the field. And he says, uh, Jesus tells this little parable, and it's this really powerful parable. He says, a man finds a treasure buried in a field, and he does what? He sells everything he can to buy the field. Because that, that is so important, he drops whatever he's doing and he does everything he can to buy this field. And there's this, this kind of this idea that that's what's happening here, that Boaz is making this his number one priority. He's got to make this happen. This is the most important thing he could do in the moment. Now, the gate of any town in Jewish culture was where business was done. It's where courts were presiding. It's where everything was handled. And it was usually handled in the morning. So you could get off and go on and do your business. And so what would happen is, is if there was news to be had or, or, or things to be dealt with financially, you would do it in the morning and then go about your business. And, and so there was always uh, the elders of the town there to be witnesses to what was happening. So the gate high traffic, a lot of people. Think of like an old town diner where <laughs> the people were there every day and you just heard the news, you heard the gossip and, and people lent out tools and figured out different things, talked about the harvest. Men would, would sit in the city square and they would, they would convene court if they needed to. So the closest kinsman to Naomi was probably coming in to get some business done and, and to deal with uh, news that was happening. And he unwittingly ends up in a real estate transaction deal because Boaz is about to present to him the possibility of more land for him to buy, Naomi's. Verse 3, it says this. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one 
has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. I mean, so this is like a no-brainer for him, right? Uh, It's a no-brainer land deal because here's what's happened. Here's what he knows, this guardian redeemer knows about Naomi. She doesn't have any kids. So she doesn't have anybody that that land is going to go back to. See, Jewish land laws were more like lease laws in in the sense that if you bought someone's land, um, they could uh, uh, conceivably go back to the the family uh, of original ownership at a certain point depending on uh, circumstances and and how family trees forked and and different things like that. And so she's kind of, he's kind of led to believe that Naomi's kind of cashing in her 401k, that she's she's trying to get um, this land off of her, that this is going to, this money's going to provide for her. Um, And and mostly um, he knows that when Naomi dies, it's free and clear his land. I mean, this is like a deal right here. This is, uh, of course, he doesn't even hesitate. He says, I will redeem it. I'll buy it right here. Let's do it right now. I mean, it is a no-brainer. Except for there's fine print, right? And this is where, this is where I think Boaz is super shrewd. I mean, he is, uh, he's, he's probably thinking about this all the way over from uh, the threshing floor. He's like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to actually make this go in my favor? Verse 5, then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Whoa. <laughs> Right? Oh, just so you know, um, you get Ruth too. And um, as Ruth's redeemer, you're actually, you're actually more than just going to have to provide for her. You're going to have to have a son with her. That's, that's, a, that's a big deal. And, and once the redeemer buys the field from Naomi, he's 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 buying Ruth. He's 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 in a sense got these two women to take care of, and he has to perpetuate their family. At this, the guardian redeemer said, "This is verse six. Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. I mean, there's no hesitation to buy it initially." And this is a game changer for him. There is no way he's going to do it. What I think is interesting is when you read about this guy, um, I find it kind of ironic that he was so concerned with his name and his estate. Right? And we don't even know his name. He was so concerned about what this would mean to him and his family, you know, his, his name and his, 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 led, his, his legacy that we don't even know him. I mean, he disappears after this. We don't even know who this guy is. They don't even name the guy. He is a guardian redeemer. And I also think it's interesting that he's willing to increase the wealth and size and the glory of his kingdom without any sacrifice. And that there's this... Uh, He's, he's not going to sacrifice anything unless it's for his own personal benefit. 
But the name we do know about is Boaz. We know about Boaz. We've heard about Boaz. We've talked about Boaz. He stands up for Naomi and Ruth, not only as a redeemer, but also as a type of advocate. Also as a kind of a, in terms of bridging the gap between um, uh, redemption and absolute desperation. He's, he acts like a priest. How, how the Old Testament priests were supposed to act. See, here's how this was supposed to go at the town gate. How it was supposed to go was out of Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, you don't have to turn there. That's a lot of flipping. I know for some of you, that's just, that's more than you're really ready to do. But if, if you wanted to turn to Deuteronomy, it's to the left, okay? I'm not giving you the page number. Deuteronomy chapter 25. And we talked about this a number of weeks ago, the law of leveret marriage. And the law of leveret marriage meant that if your, brothers, if your brother died, then you would take your brother's wife as your own as a way of perpetuating your brother's family lineage. It was, it was a way that small communities, agriculture communities, actually, I mean, having a son and, and having kids and, and growing, I mean, this, for us, it's like weird. Um, no, we're not doing that. But um, for them, this is, this is not just a Jewish thing. This is an a ancient Near East thing. Okay, and so this is, uh, they kind of put some boundaries on it. God kind of put some boundaries on it in this Deuteronomy 25. It says in verse 7, however, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, okay, she can, now ladies, just as we read this, just think about how humiliating this would have been. She shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's, family, his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him. Okay, so you can imagine this is like, like not even divorce court. This is like not getting married court, right? And, and, and so it's all happening at the town gate. You know, people are like, I was just trying to get water and I had to hear this, right? You know, this is just awkward. It's like a Jerry Springer thing happening right at the gate. Maybe I took that too far. So then the elders of this town shall summon, shall summon him to talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, and spit in his face. This is awesome. And say, this is, what, this is what is done to the man who will not build up my brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. <laughs> Which, um, it probably doesn't have the effect here today, but, um, I mean, there's, there's a disrespect to it. There's a, there's, this is an honor-shame culture. So your honor was the most important thing about you. And so, and to bring shame on your name was catastrophic. And so as a duty-bound brother, this is, this is kind of, this is like, hey, don't do this. I mean, men knew what would happen in this regard. If your name wasn't respected, you're not, you're not getting, you're not trading well, you're not, you're not interacting well in the community very well. It's just not good for you. So you see, Naomi and Ruth, they didn't have to go to the gate and negotiate their own deal. 
Boaz did it. Boaz advocated for them shrewdly and effectively. Boaz showed up. There's no chance Ruth as a Moabite would have had no shot to negotiate anything at the gate. No one would have listened to her. She's a foreigner. She doesn't have uh, the sticking power as, uh, uh, as, a, as a good Jewish woman would have. And so like a priest, Boaz shows up and he has this standing with the community. He has this right standing within this society. And he bridges this legal gap between Ruth and Israelite, the Israelite elders. Boaz gives both Naomi and Ruth tremendous hope for redemption by representing them. And this is a picture we get as we zoom back out of God all throughout Scripture. And if you haven't really been familiar with what God has done, this is, this is a, a picture in human terms of what God has done cosmically. This is a picture in human terms in, in, in a small family, in a little, little, little microcosm of society, in a little small time that God is doing right now actively in our midst. Now it says in verse 7, um, it actually talks about this whole sandal thing. It says, now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was a method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer says to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. It's this, this way of saying, I'm committed to uh, th- this transaction happening. I'm letting you go and take care of it. I will not come back. These are witnesses. They're going to watch. I will not come back around and say, hey, that was my opportunity. I'm, I'm relinquishing my dibs on the land. I know that sounds horrible, but it's... And now it's Boaz's show. Now Boaz buys everything. Boaz buys all of it. Boaz restores all of it. He does all this publicly. In front of the elders, the whole town, he shamelessly identifies himself with this foreigner, Ruth, and this tragic Naomi. He buys everything. With the witnesses of all the people, they see the story of death and suffering, of bitterness, now come full circle into one of redemption and restoration. And they recognize that this statusless pagan Moabite woman now has standing in Israel. Listen to this, verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. Remember, their names were death and dying, sick and dying, whatever. Kind of a bummer. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, which sounds so awful to our ears. But you need to get, you need, I need, go back in our series to hear kind of how that worked out. But it, it, 
it sounds so awful for us to say that, but you need to understand how, how that society worked. Um, he says, I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among the, his family or from his hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. See, what we see here is God providing hope. And a lot of times what we, we think about when we think about uh, God and Jesus and church and all this kind of stuff is forgiveness, right? We think about forgiveness a lot. And, and forgiveness is, don't get me wrong, it's a huge theme. It is a huge theme. I mean, amen to forgiveness, right? If forgiveness is fantastic, we love forgiveness. But there's more to this redemption thing than just forgiveness. See, I remember growing up, and I would come to, I'd go to a church camp, and I'd go, oh, I need to be forgiven again. And I keep asking for forgiveness, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't realize, really, until I got older, that, that this, whole, uh, this whole thing that God is about in my life is more than just forgiving me. It's about, it's about this restored relationship with God again. Like this, this way of living my life in such a way that I steward what God wants. Everywhere I'm at. That it's not just about, oh, I'm, am I good today? Or, am I better today than I was yesterday? Um, did I slip up again? It's not, it, that's not what this is about. This is about a whole new relationship that begins to happen with the creator of the universe going forward. And there's, there's hope in knowing that God feels even more compassion for us than Boaz does with Ruth. That there's this there's this God that would drop anything and make it his number one priority to have that restored relationship with you and I again. And we see this all throughout Scripture. I mean, look at the difference of these two guardian redeemers. One of them was not willing to attach his name to Ruth, was not willing to, uh, to have that um, come upon his name at all. And yet we are told throughout the pages of Scripture that there's a God that is so relentless to draw us back that he, would, he puts all the sacrifice forward, that he does all the work. It says in 1 Corinthians 6 that you and I were bought with a price, that there's this picture of, of rescue and buying back, all the language that a guardian redeemer was known for, Right? restitution, redemption. I want you to hear this, that God is a God of redemption who has the will and the power to redeem the bitter, the broken, the outcast back into fellowship with him. The reason why we name this church restoration because the definition is to return something to its former owner, place, or condition. That there's a piece of that for all of us and we're always on that journey of restoration. It's not like, well... I did the, whole, uh, did the whole salvation thing. I did the whole baptism thing. I'm good. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I've I'm, I'm been forgiven. I'm good. There's nothing else to work out. No, there's, a, there's, st- <laughs> there's still a lot to work out. I don't know. I don't know if, if you're like me or not, but uh, it's just there's, there's such a journey in all of this. See, the Hebrew word for redeemer is goel. And it's this word that's taken um, out of the root word to rescue and to redeem. And, and Yahweh is the, pictured as the great Goel. 
the great redeemer, the great rescuer. And I think it's important for us to remember kind of like the beginning of the story. I mean, we spent three weeks at the beginning of the story when it was just brutal, when there was just no hope and there, any moment they could have been overtaken by anybody and, and forced to do whatever. And, and for the first chapter, it's just desperate and, and painful and bitter. And we spent three weeks in it. And I don't know if you remember why I, I told you, but I said, I feel like we've just got to just sit in this for a while. And I think so much of the time, we are always like trying to run away from that, right? As Americans, we're so quick to run away from a feeling bitter and, and resentful and, and disappointed and discouraged and in desperation. We try to fix it with everything. We try to medicate it. We try to, to escape it. But there's something about feeling our own bitterness, our own despair, and our own emptiness that makes the redemption piece so much better. Listen to what happens as this story finishes up. Verse 11, it says, Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. I mean, this is like a Tuesday morning. I mean, it was just like a normal day, and this event happens. Uh, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Epaphrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. These are all, I mean, we could have lots of conversations on all these people. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Verse 13. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better... uh, who is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living uh, there said, Naomi has a son. Wait a second. Does that mess with you a little bit? I thought that was Ruth's son. Well, it turns out Ruth has handed this son to Naomi. That this is like something more redemptive in this story than, than we could have ever imagined. Remember, in chapter one, it was like, I don't have a chance of having a son. I don't have a chance of any of this happening. So the woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And as we see that lineage go further in Matthew chapter one, we know who else is a part of that lineage. What I find so amazing in this story is this is in chapter three when Ruth comes to the threshing floor and she says to Boaz, cover me. That picture is uh, a picture of atonement. Atonement, the word atonement means covering. It's this idea that you are the only one that could cover me. You're the only one that could protect me. You're the only one that could make this all redeemed. And Boaz says, I will do it. I will rescue you. I will liberate you. I will provide for you. I will cover you. 
And that is the groan and the ache for all of us. That is this universal humanity groan and ache. I'm reminded of the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And if you don't know, it's a famous football verse that we get this, <laughs> we get that from. Um, but the verse after the famous football verse goes like this. And this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to go el the world through him, to redeem the world, to rescue the world. This is the universal, unrelenting, passionate heartbeat of God for us. And it should move us somewhere. And so I don't know today where the distance is between your head and your heart on this. I don't know if there's so much pain in your life that you get to the point where you're just like, I don't know if I can believe that. I don't know. <laughs> you might find yourself a little bit like Naomi was so bitter. And, and her, 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 her language was towards the God that she knew. But my guess is uh, your language might be, I don't believe there is such a, such a God. I don't believe there could be such a God. I mean, you look around. But what we see is little instances, little, little tastes of God's redemption in our lives. Some of you experienced it. Some of you have witnessed it in families and friends. Some of you have seen things, situations change because God has intervened in some way. So I don't know what the distance is between your head and your heart today on this. But the universal, relentless, passionate pursuit of God in you, it's just, it's not gonna stop. It will not stop. You can choose, choose to be like Ruth's uh, uh, you know, sister-in-law who, who said, you know what? Pragmatically and practically, I'm just gonna go back to Moab. I'm just gonna go back. I mean, I know what that's like. I can deal with that situation. I know the culture. I know what I can get and I know what I, I can't get. And I'll just live with what I got. And Ruth, in absolute faith, takes this step towards Israel, takes this step towards the God of Scripture and says, no, I'm all in. I don't know what this looks like yet, but I'm all in. And so this morning, I want to remind you, as we finish this up, um, we have one more week here that we're going to talk about some things, but the book of Ruth in Jewish tradition was read um, during the Feast of Tabernacles. I actually read the story of Ruth during the Feast of Tabernacles. And I could see families gathering and people gathering around and talking about God's provision for Israel as they wandered the wilderness. And then there's this beautiful story. And the story's meant to point towards God. It's, most, it's, it's mostly good. It's, it's a great story. And I know we could sit around and go, oh, there's some principles for our dating life and our marriage. Well, sure, yeah. Don't get hung up there. This is a story about a God who loves his creation so much that he chooses to willingly buy back. He puts all the sacrifice forward in his son, Jesus Christ, for us. We don't deserve it. We're outside. We're foreigners. And yet, lavishes us on us. So this morning, we're going to do a couple of things. We're going to have communion. We're going to spend some time in communion. And for some of you today, maybe communion is that first faith step that says, this is what you've done for me. God, this is what you've done for me. You've, you've, you've 
broken yourself for me. This is your bread. Your, the bread symbolizes your body broken for me. And the blood, uh, the wine, uh, the juice, we're not doing wine today, but symbolizes your blood spilled for me. And this is, this is this beautiful picture of your act of redemption in my life. And so we're just called to gather and do that today as community. And this might be your first step of faith. This might be your first action of faith. I don't know. For some of us in this room, it might be this 152 millionth time you've done this. But there's something to remind ourselves with about this. The who we are without Christ. And then after the service, it's going to be great because we have a couple guys who are, who are uh, getting baptized. And it's just like this beautiful picture of what happens uh, when, when we die to ourselves. Our old self just is, is no longer there. It's gone. And this new, this new person's there. I mean, yeah, your personality's there and, and you know, your experiences are all there and all that kind of stuff. But, but as God sees you, you are redeemed. And so that's what baptism shows us. And so this morning, if you're new to this place, how we do communion is very simple. Um, in the back, there's um, gluten-free in the middle, and then um, full-fledged gluten on the sides. All right? And so you just, as you, <laughs> as you uh, just worship, and as Elliot and the band come up, and, and we're just going to sing it, whenever you're ready to do that, whenever you're ready, just, just stand up and go back and, and, di- and dip the bread in the juice. And um, if you need some time, if you need to, to walk around, if you need to stand in the back, if you, you, you want to kneel, you can kneel. Make this a moment of just, of just grateful thanks. And yet at the same time, there's this beautiful part about participating in it. Participating in what God's trying to do in this world. And that's also why we come to the